Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode of History of Ideas, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, is about Rosa Luxemburg, revolutionary and critic of revolutions. David discusses her classic takedown of Lenin's Russian Revolution less than a year after it happened. She thought it was a wonderful event. Why did she also think it was turning into a disaster? Rosa Luxemburg lived a revolutionary life in that she lived the life of a revolutionary. It was a dangerous life. She spent a significant amount of time in jail. She was often in personal, physical danger. It was a pretty tumultuous life. It was dramatic, both her personal life and her revolutionary life. She also lived the life of an outsider. She was a woman in a world of men. She was a Jew in a notoriously anti-Semitic age. She was Polish, she was born in Poland, but she spent a large part of her adult life among Germans. For all the drama, for all the tumult though, it is possible to say quite straightforwardly what was the worst day of Rosa Luxemburg's life. That is the worst day before the final day of her life. She was murdered at the age of 47 on January the 15th, 1919. But before that terrible day, The worst day by far, the worst thing that ever happened to Rosa Luxemburg, happened on August the 4th, 1914, with the outbreak of the First World War. And more particularly, it was what happened on that day in the German parliament. So Germany in 1914 had a real parliament, but it was also a kind of fake parliament. It wasn't like the the UK parliament in Westminster. It did not have that kind of power. Germany was still a pretty autocratic regime ruled by the emperor, the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm, who appointed ministers who essentially appointed the government. And the parliament did not have the power to stop him. It could not hire and fire ministers, the great power of the British parliament, what gives the British parliament its power. But the German parliament was elected on a pretty broad franchise. There was something close to universal male suffrage. Certainly working men could vote. And in 1914, the largest party in the German parliament was the Socialist Party, the Social Democratic Party, the SPD. And in that parliament, the one power that was possessed by the parliamentarians was the right to approve budgets, financial measures and loans. They had a veto power over government budgets. And on the 4th of August 1914, the parliament, which contained a large number of socialists, was asked the question whether it would approve what were called the war credits. That is essentially the scheme that would fund Germany in the First World War. And for Rosa Luxemburg, who was taking a very, very close interest in the debates in Parliament on that day, the answer was absolutely blindingly obvious. She was a socialist. She was closely involved in the politics of the SPD. It was a very factional party. It was large and it was factional. It was divided into all sorts of different groupings. There were the Orthodox Marxists and the Revisionists. There were the Internationalists and the Nationalists. There were the Pragmatists and the Ideologues. And Rosa Luxemburg had strong views about all of these things. But nonetheless, she thought all of them, whatever stripe of revolutionary socialist they were, couldn't possibly vote for the war. The war the First World War, was the antithesis of everything all of them stood for. 
They all believed in their different ways in workers' solidarity. They all believed in their different ways that the job of socialism was to unite the workers against the ruling class, ultimately to replace the ruling class with workers' rule. It was not to empower the ruling class to get the workers to kill each other. It was not to vote for war credits that would pay for the war machine that would send German workers, German working men, to kill French working men and Belgian working men and civilians too, and the British and the Russians. The answer was so obvious to Rosa Luxemburg that she literally could not understand what happened because what happened was her party, the Revolutionary Socialist Party of Germany, and it still was a revolutionary party in its formal constitution, voted unanimously for the war credits and thereby gave the green light to the First World War. And when she saw the party in which she had believed do the opposite of the thing for which she thought it stood, she contemplated suicide. Quite seriously, she thought her life was over because nothing made sense anymore. If they could do that, then the whole fight had been in vain. And she plunged into absolute despair. But she came out of it. She did not commit suicide. And quite quickly, she realized what she had to do. There was only one thing for a true revolutionary to do, for a true socialist to do. And that was to embark on what became for her the core struggle, which was to stop the war. If the war was the antithesis of revolutionary socialism, then to be a revolutionary socialist meant from that day on doing everything in your power to bring the war to an end. Ending the war would be the revolutionary act. And in coming to that view, she came closer to the view of someone who was her near contemporary, but was also very different, and in a way became both her lifelong comrade and her nemesis, the Russian revolutionary, Vladimir Lenin. So Luxembourg's view of the First World War was similar to Lenin's, in three respects, really. First, they both had a similar understanding of what had caused it. It was, to their minds, both of them, the conventional Marxist understanding, as they came to see it. So the war was itself evidence of the contradictions of capitalism, because they both believed that imperialism, and they saw this as an imperial war, it was the war between the British Empire, the French Empire, the German Empire, Russia, which was an empire in itself, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was an empire. It was a war of empires, and imperialism was itself an expression of capitalism, because of their understanding of the contradiction at the heart of capitalism. They saw this as the orthodox Marxist view. What Marx had shown is that capitalism was ultimately unsustainable because it produced more than could be consumed. So capitalism worked by exploiting the workers. And that exploitation meant paying them less than their labour was worth in order to make a profit, in order to produce things to sell. But then who are you going to sell them to? Because you've exploited the workers. The workers do not have enough money. You're not paying them enough to buy the things that you make. So capitalism is constantly plagued by crises of overproduction, which is why capitalist businesses go bust. So if you've got too much stuff to sell and no one to sell it to, what do you do? You build an empire and you dump it overseas. And imperialism was an expression of capitalist overproduction because imperialism was the means by which capitalists could find new markets literally to conquer, to colonize and to conquer. But capitalism is not sustainable. And ultimately, this attempt to put off the reckoning 
would just produce a greater international reckoning as the empires themselves come to clash. And that's what the First World War was for both Luxembourg and Lenin. It was a war of empires, empires understood as the outcrop of capitalism. They also both believed that therefore, the definition of a revolutionary act in that context was to get out of the war. Their job as revolutionaries was to do whatever was in their power to bring this war to an end. Luxembourg believed it, Lenin believed it, and Lenin ultimately did it. And finally, what they had in common was their view, which was absolutely hardwired in Lenin, but had to be acquired by Luxembourg, that Russia was potentially a revolutionary society. That is, that under these conditions, the revolution could break out in a wide range of places, and it's not necessarily the case that it would come first in Germany, where Luxembourg had been fighting the revolutionary struggle for most of her adult life. Russia was also potentially a site of revolution, and that was an unconventional view, certainly in many of the circles in which Luxembourg moved in Germany. There was, among many German Marxists and socialists, a patronising view of Russia as a backward society, a peasant society, a theocratic society, not just an imperial society, but almost a medieval monarchical society. The Tsar was some throwback to a feudal past. This was a society in which peasants had been serfs only a couple of generations before. It was not where proletarian revolution would break out. The proletariat in Russia was tiny, dwarfed by the number of peasants. Industry in Russia was backward. Society in Russia was archaic. Germany, or maybe Britain, or maybe the United States, or maybe France, or maybe Belgium, or maybe the Netherlands. These are the countries which were ripe for workers' revolution. Russia was somewhere much, much further down the line. And that argument reached for Luxembourg its absolutely most absurd expression on August the 4th. 1914, when socialists had to justify how and why they could possibly vote for a war which was the antithesis of what they were meant to believe in. And the argument was, we are going to take the fight to Russia. And if the German state, the advanced industrial German state, defeats the backward Russian state, it will accelerate Russia's progress to German states of readiness for revolution, which for Luxembourg was just spurious nonsense. You don't justify a war like this in the name of turning Russia from a feudal into a capitalist society for the sake of a socialist revolution. She and Lenin saw through that argument for the nonsense that it was. Luxembourg's view that Russia was potentially a site of revolution was partly informed by her experience as a Pole as someone who grew up in Poland, and the arguments that raged in Poland among socialists and revolutionaries about the correct strategy, the correct approach to the whole question of when and how a revolution and overturning of the ruling order might be achieved. And again, there was a conventional view which stemmed from Germany, that Poland, which was not an independent state at this point, it was not a nation state in its own right. It was a country divided between two dominating powers, to the west, Germany, so there was the German bit of Poland, and to the east, Russia, the Russian bit. And conventional, orthodox, but also to Luxembourg, wrong, Marxist theory said 
that the bit that was closest to Germany, because Germany is the more advanced society, will be the more advanced bit of Poland. It will be the bit that is more industrialized. It will be the bit that is closer to proletarian organization on a revolutionary scale. It will be the bit that is far riper for radical change than the bit that is still trapped by Russian traditions, Russian orthodoxies, and also Russian medieval practices. The agrarian feudal bit will be left behind by the Western industrializing bit. And Luxembourg said, well, that's all very well in theory, but have you ever been to Poland? You Germans who are theorizing about where the development is happening, because it's not happening in the West, it's happening in the East. Eastern Poland was more developed and also more industrial than Western Poland. Why? How can that be possible if it's the Russian bit? Her answer, because Russia really is an empire. And what capitalism does, whatever stage it's at, is it tries to control the market. Capitalism is not market forces red in tooth and claw, because if you do capitalism like that, it just blows up in your face. A Marxist has to understand that what capitalists will always try and do is control the market, monopolize the market, limit competition, control who they can dump their goods on. And that's what empires are for. That's why capitalists ally themselves with imperial projects, because there is the kind of control that is needed to keep it going. And it was the imperial aspect of Russia that allowed Eastern Poland to develop under conditions of control, which therefore gave the lie to that whole idea that the nearer you are to Germany, the nearer you are to revolution. Luxembourg thought it was at least possible that the opposite was true. She still believed that Germany was ripe for revolution because, frankly, she thought pretty much everywhere was ripe for revolution. But the idea that Russia, and by extension Poland, had to wait was anathema to her. She also thought that Polish nationalism was anathema. So she was a lifelong committed internationalist. And again, in her mind, she always thought she was being true to the truth of Marxism itself. Marxism, which was, at its heart, an internationalist doctrine, but then compromised with principles of nationalism, the various editions of the Communist Manifesto, including the Polish edition, which appeared with a preface by Engels, which said, though we are an internationalist movement, Polish nationalism, the desire to create Poland as a separate independent nation state, must be allowed because it is one of the stages that may have to be passed through. What Luxembourg hated about Polish nationalism was it was this combination, which she saw in various different forms of Marxist orthodoxy, of being both too rigid and too flexible. So the rigidity is the argument, the assumption that societies have to pass through certain stages before they are ready for the ultimate revolution, the proletarian revolution, and eventually the arrival of a communist utopia. That orthodox but very rigid view which ranks societies on how near they are, how ripe they are, would look at Poland and say it's not even a nation yet. It hasn't even passed through its national bourgeois liberal revolution. It hasn't thrown off feudal Russian imperial rule. It has to do that first. So let's encourage revolutionary movements in Poland to annex themselves to nationalist movements to accelerate this. Poland has to move through those stages which must be passed through before you finally get to the stage when revolution is possible. That's the rigidity. And then it comes with too much pragmatism. And therefore, we can compromise with these other movements. We can have an edition of the Communist Manifesto that 
denies its essence, which is this is internationalism or it's nothing, because it doesn't matter, because this is the preliminary stage. This is the point where we can make compromises which will be washed away when we finally reached the promised land of the final stage of capitalism and the proletarian revolution to come. Luxembourg hated that, and she thought these two things went together. The people who were most rigid, she thought, were also the people who compromised too much because they didn't think the compromises mattered, because they thought they could get away with anything because this wasn't the important bit. She thought that Polish nationalism was a nonsense. The job of a revolutionary was not to fight for an independent nation-state. The job of a revolutionary was to fight for an international revolution. Then her view that Russia might, just might, be a site of genuine revolutionary possibility was confirmed for her by the Russian Revolution, not the 1917 revolution, the 1905 revolution. And she and Lenin both had their views confirmed by what happened in Russia in 1905. So the first Russian Revolution, as it's sometimes called, was seen by many orthodox Marxists as the wrong revolution because Russia was still a feudal, theocratic, czarist, agrarian society. And therefore, it had to pass through its bourgeois liberal revolution before it could then have its real revolution. And many people on the Marxist left saw what happened in Russia in 1905 as that first kind of revolution. It was more like the English Civil War, England's liberal bourgeois revolution according to Marxist theory. It was more like the French Revolution. It was more like those earlier European revolutions that turned Western European societies from their feudal or agrarian roots into modern industrialising constitutional states, which then left them ripe for communism eventually. Russia had to get there first. So many Marxists thought this was a revolution to sit out, let the bourgeoisie get on with it. And indeed, they noticed of this revolution that it wasn't the proletariat that were leading it. It was a hodgepodge of all sorts of different forces at work. The peasants were rebelling. The workers, indeed, were on strike. Trade unions were involved. But the bourgeoisie were on strike too. The liberals, the middle class, even the capitalists wanted change. They wanted to get rid of the Tsar or they wanted to get the Tsar to make concessions, to liberalise, to constitutionalise. Everybody wanted a parliament with a real vote and a real say. Everybody wanted to take part in elections, apart from a number of the Marxists who said, this is nothing to do with us. Bourgeois elections to a bourgeois parliament, why would we take part in that? We'll sit this one out. We'll let them play that one through. Then we'll strike. Luxembourg thought that was nonsense. Lenin thought it was nonsense. Lenin, in 1905, wrote a series of articles in which he said, essentially, which is also what Luxembourg believed, if we call ourselves revolutionaries, and this is a revolution, why the hell would we sit it out? This is the thing that we believe in, so it doesn't look like the revolution that we want. Let's make it the revolution we want. It's a revolutionary moment. He made a joke, which is not remotely funny, but I think it's probably the closest thing that Lenin made to a joke that is actually a joke. He said the attitude of these overly rigid, overly orthodox Marxists to the 1905 Russian Revolution was like the people who fell for the advertisement for flea powder, where it says on the side of the flea powder bottle, instructions, first catch your flea, then pour on the powder. That's the joke. The idea being to be that kind of revolutionary, you first have to wait for the thing to happen, which once it's happened, you don't need the flea powder. You've already got the flea. 
To be a Marxist is not to wait until the flea is caught. It's to catch it. It's to take the flea powder and chuck it over everything and see what dies and what dies deserves to die. Lenin was that kind of revolutionary and Luxembourg was in many ways that kind of revolutionary too. But they had a big disagreement about the lesson of the 1905 Russian Revolution. The disagreement was about Lenin's view that to make the revolution a genuine revolution, it needed, above all, centralised leadership from the party. Lenin was a centralizer. Lenin believed that if this revolution looked wrong, it was the job of Marxist intellectuals at the head of a tight-knit organization to steer it in the right direction, to control it, to take the workers by the scruff of the neck, the workers who were confused, who were muddled up, who were getting into alliances either with the peasants or with the bourgeoisie, who were confused about whether they were voting for liberal rights or for workers' rights, and to drag them kicking and screaming into the promised land. And Luxembourg thought that that was completely wrong. So she came up in 1905 with a theory of revolution which she associated with one word in particular, spontaneity. The revolution has to be a spontaneous act. And what she meant by that was, it had to teach us its lessons. You find out what the revolution is by seeing what the revolution is. You follow it. You follow it as much as you lead it. And it will educate you. The big difference between Luxembourg and Lenin is Lenin thought it was his job and the job of a tight coterie of people who thought like him, the Bolshevik party, to educate the revolution. Luxembourg thought intellectuals above all needed to be educated by the revolution, by the workers. So if you go into a factory as a Marxist revolutionary and you discover that the workers aren't arguing for the things that you think they ought to be arguing for, you don't tell them that they're wrong. You try and understand why it is that they are arguing for those things. And when you understand that, you will be much, much better placed to lead them because you will be leading them in accordance with what it is they themselves have discovered about their fate. Lenin was having none of that. Lenin didn't believe that the workers truly understood their fate. Only the Bolshevik party did. And when the Russian Revolution of 1905 fizzled out, both Lenin and Luxembourg believed that they'd been proved right in that Lenin thought the reason the revolution failed, that it didn't even get minor concessions from the Tsarist regime, it didn't even move to that stage where one could say of Russia, now at least, it was a bourgeois liberal society. Lenin thought was because of a failure of leadership. He could have dragged it if he'd been given the chance right the way through that revolution and onto the revolution he wanted. It was all about failures of leadership. For Luxembourg, it was all about failures of learning, of understanding what was really going on, of seeing the opportunities as they opened up, seeing them open up in front of your eyes and learning from them. Maybe the workers and the peasants, maybe the workers and the middle classes, maybe the parliament, maybe the electoral system, maybe all of it or any of it contained within it the possibility of meaningful, lasting change leading to the next change and the next change. And a genuinely spontaneous revolutionary moment for Luxembourg leads on and on and on to new things and unexpected things. For Lenin, it leads to the place you know it has to go. And if it doesn't get there, it's because it wasn't led. And then in 1917, there was the next Russian Revolution. And the next Russian Revolution was one about which Lenin and Luxembourg had exactly the same view. But this is not Lenin's revolution. This is not the October Revolution. It is 
the second Russian Revolution, but the first Russian Revolution of 1917, the first of two, the February Revolution, the Liberal Revolution, the one that did get rid of the Tsar and did replace the Tsarist regime, which had basically collapsed under the weight of trying to fight and failing to fight to prosecute the First World War. It collapsed to be replaced by chaos, but by an attempt to impose a new kind of constitutional order through elections, the rule of law, a liberalisation of opinion and the press, the involvement of a wider range of Russian society in democratic decision-making, a classic in its way, liberal and for Marxist bourgeois revolution. And again, there were many Marxists who said, we have to sit this one out. And again, Luxembourg and Lenin said, it's a revolution. We don't sit this one out. And what's more, they both felt it was an absurd revolution. Because the one thing that the revolutionaries were committed to, the new regime that replaced the Tsarist regime in February 1917, was continuing the war. And both of them by this point had come to understand that the only true test of a genuine revolution during the First World War was a commitment to end it. So if this was a revolutionary moment, this was the moment for true revolutionaries to try and seize power and end the war. And that's what Lenin did in the Third Russian Revolution, or the Second Revolution of 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, which was effectively a coup. He and a relatively small number of people within the Bolshevik party seized power at the center and used the power that they seized to do as the first thing, the thing that he and Luxembourg believed was now the definition of a revolutionary act, take Russia out of the war. That's what Lenin did at the start of 1918. And to many people looking on the outside, it was madness. First of all, what was to Luxembourg and Lenin the definition of a revolutionary act was defined by the wider world as surrender. Not quitting the war, not stopping the war, not rescuing the workers from more meaningless, pointless slaughter, but straightforward surrender. And who was Russia surrendering to? Germany, the militarist, imperialist German state. And in so doing, many people thought, making it very likely that Germany would win the war, that the state for which the Socialist Party had voted in August 1914 to support would come out on top. How could Rosa Luxemburg believe that was a good idea? But she did. She thought Lenin was an absolute revolutionary hero. Not only had he achieved a genuine socialist revolution, that is, he'd started one, but he'd also done the test of a revolutionary act. She was euphoric. She was exhilarated by it. In 1918, she was also in jail because she had, during this time, been trying to stop the war in Germany. And though most people thought that Russia exiting the war made it more likely that Germany would not quit the war, but would win it, Luxembourg was thrilled. But she also saw a repeat of what had happened in 1905, but this time Lenin was calling the shots. And from her prison cell in 1918, she wrote a short essay called The Russian Revolution, in which she celebrated Lenin, she celebrated his courage, she made it clear that she believed he was one of the most significant figures in human history, and she excoriated him. She absolutely tore his revolution to shreds. What was she complaining about? She was complaining about what she had complained about in 1905, that Leninism, which was never a creed, 
that she signed up to was too centralizing, too controlling, too oppressive, and too cruel. That Lenin had already, by 1918, embraced a kind of rule of terror, but also he was suppressing and stifling democracy. Now, democracy for Luxembourg, as indeed for all social democrats, was an integral part of the socialist revolution. Lenin also paid lip service to the idea that this was all about creating a true and genuine democracy, a workers' democracy, through the dictatorship of the proletariat. But democracy, a form of democracy, was the goal. But Lenin would say the kind of democracy he had in mind had nothing to do with that fake bourgeois democracy of elections. That was all just a ruse. His taking part in that kind of politics was simply a ruse to get him to the point where he was in charge. And once he was in charge, it was up to him to decide when, where and how to lead the workers next. Whereas Luxembourg remained committed to the idea that to take part in a revolution is to open yourself up to what people, the people, think is happening. Not to tell them, but to ask them to try and find out, to try and track the spontaneity, to understand it, to recognize it in real time, to be surprised by it. One definition of democracy is that democracy should be surprising. Luxembourg believed that too. Lenin didn't. Lenin believed democracy should never be surprising. So Luxembourg said it was a terrible mistake on the part of the Bolshevik regime to stop the elections to the Constituent Assembly, to restrict the franchise, to remove the freedoms, including the freedoms of expression, the freedoms of the press, that had been created by the so-called bourgeois revolution of 1917. Lenin ditched them because they were nothing to do with his revolution. Luxembourg believed that some form of democracy, of involving people, of giving them a voice, a say, was essential if a revolution was to meet its potential. She thought that Lenin was killing the revolution before it started by lacking the courage to listen to it instead of leading it. But there's also a kind of oddity to the argument that she makes in the Russian Revolution. And all the way through, it's a kind of double piece of writing. She celebrates Lenin and she lays into him. You can never quite tell when and if her tongue is in her cheek. She does seem genuinely to think he's an absolutely heroic figure. And you sense that she also knows that he might be a monster. But the real puzzle is the two policies for which she criticizes him and his new regime in 1918 in Russia. The reason she criticizes them is because they're not centralizing enough. So there's a double critique running through the argument in the essay. It's not a long essay, it's pretty easy to read. But it's odd, because she seems both to be saying that the problem with Leninism is it's centralizing and it's controlling, and it doesn't trust people, and it doesn't listen to people, and it doesn't actually, deep down, believe at all in freedom. And she also says that the two big mistakes that Lenin made was first, on what she calls the national question, nationalism versus internationalism, to allow freedom to the constituent parts of the Russian Empire, the proto-nations, the Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia, what Luxembourg describes as fake states altogether, fake nations. She thinks Ukraine doesn't even really exist, except in the fantasy of a few intellectuals. And yet what Lenin did when he achieved power was not to try and hold this empire together, but allow it to break apart, to say, as many Marxists had said, including many orthodox Marxists, that it was fine if different nations took their own path 
to revolution, to allow these different nations the right to self-determination, a phrase that Luxembourg associated with Woodrow Wilson and democratic, bourgeois, liberal, democratic fakery, American capitalism dressed up as democracy. And here was Lenin saying he too believed in a form of self-determination, that it was too much to try and hold the Russian Empire together. These nations had to be allowed to go their own way before they were brought back into the fold. She wanted him to hold on, and yet she was also criticising him for being a centraliser and a control freak. And the other criticism that she had was over his land policy. And it's the same kind of criticism. One of the decisions that the Bolshevik regime made very early on was not to try to hold together the large semi-feudal, legacy feudal estates on which most peasants worked, but to allow the land to fall into the hands of much smaller units, essentially to break it up, to allow vast estates to become much smaller and, in a sense, self-owned pieces of land, to give it back to the peasantry, to let them organise on a much smaller scale, not to try and control them, not to try and regulate them, and then over time to believe that these new units could be brought back into the fold, could be hoovered back up into the glorious new regime. And Luxembourg thought both of these policies were a catastrophic mistake. So how does that work? How can it be the case both that Lenin is too much of a centraliser and also that he's too laissez-faire when it comes to allowing big units to break up into small units? I think the answer has something to do with Luxembourg's view of democracy. But also it goes back to her own belief that she was the orthodox Marxist. She was an internationalist. She hated concessions that allowed nationalism its head. She thought you were an internationalist in revolutionary politics or you were nothing. So what was Lenin doing making a concession to internationalism? She also believed that Russia, in its control of Poland, made Poland a more advanced society, in some ways a more potentially revolutionary society, by the scale of its control, by these large landed estates, by the way in which, in Russia, there was an attempt to hold the whole thing together, to regulate it. And breaking it up, allowing smaller forms of ownership, giving peasants the view that they might well pass through a phase of private ownership before it gets renationalized, returned to the public. It was a fatal mistake because it gave up on the thing that was necessary, holding everything together, in the belief that there was a form of centralization that over time could bring it back into the Marxist fold, into the orthodox fold, into what it was meant to be. Luxembourg's view was exactly the opposite. You hold it all together in order to open it up. You don't open it up in order to bring it back. So in other words, what Luxembourg believed a revolution needed was the largest possible scale within which surprising things could happen. You keep the estates big. You keep the empire big. You keep everything together, and then you let people vote. You let people express themselves. You do not stifle the newspapers and break up the land. You hold together the land, and you open up the newspapers. You don't break up the empire into its national component parts. You hold the empire together and then you give as much possible say to all of those different parts at the centre. And Lenin had done the opposite. What he had done was break it apart but retain very narrow, very centralised control. So the thing that he held together was the narrowest thing, his power, the power of his party. And the thing that he broke apart was the social structure. 
That, for Luxembourg, was the antithesis of the promise of Marxism, the promise of a genuine workers' revolution, which took the way in which capitalism had pulled everything together, whether it was Russian imperial backward capitalism or advanced German industrial capitalism, the scale of it. Capitalism always scales up on this account. And then when the revolution comes, you take that scale and you open it up to democracy. You don't fracture that scale, stifle democracy, and then try and rebuild. And Luxembourg's implicit criticism of the Leninist revolution, what she thought would happen was that Lenin would never get beyond the point of his centralized control, that Lenin would never open up again. And that's partly because she believed, she always believed about a revolution, that the revolution was its origins, that its origins tell you something about what it is. There aren't phases that you pass through. There aren't stages on the road to it making sense. It makes sense in its own terms. So if you begin it as a rule of terror, if you begin it as a regime that suppresses free expression, that is frightened of what people think, that, as Luxembourg says, takes votes away from people, she asks the question in her essay, The Russian Revolution, how can a workers' revolution be taking votes away from workers? She's fine with taking votes away from factory owners and bourgeois intellectuals. But Lenin was taking votes away from workers that had been granted to the workers by the previous revolutionary regime. The bourgeois liberal regime had given the workers the vote. And now Lenin was taking it away from them in the name of the workers' revolution. That, Luxembourg thought, told you the character of what was to come. And it was her old critique of the people who are too rigid also being too lax, too pragmatic. The people who believe that there is a stage that has to be passed through when you can essentially compromise on your principles. Indeed, you can turn them on their head, as she thought Lenin had done with national self-determination. Because it doesn't really matter, because what you're trying to do is steer the whole thing to some destination where it will all make sense again. Let the Poles have their nation. Let Ukraine be a nation. Let the peasants take over the land. One day, the central party will pull them back. There was only one way Luxembourg thought that could go. In trying to pull them back, the central party would have to become not less, but more oppressive. Not more, but less democratic. More terrifying more coercive, if it was coercing when it was making the compromises, when it tried to rebuild the empire, to create a Soviet empire, it wouldn't be more democratic, it would be less democratic, because it would need even more control. She was arguing for the opposite, more unity, less control at the beginning, for true democratic revolutionary socialism. Was she right that ultimately communism doesn't just coexist with freedom. It feeds off freedom. Instinctively, I doubt it, but who knows? Because as many people would say in this kind of argument, the Rosa Luxemburg version has never really been tried. Was she right about Lenin? Yes, she was right. What she wrote in 1918 was in many ways prophetic. She was right that he is a world historical figure who did something completely extraordinary through the year of 1917. And she was also right that the revolution he created in 1918 was not suddenly going to morph 
into free democratic socialism. It was what it was at its origins, a reign of terror. And she was right about other things too. She and Lenin were both right that Russia getting out of the war, surrendering, did not mean that Germany would win it. Germany lost it. Germany lost it within a year. And when the German state collapsed in the aftermath of its defeat, there was a German revolution, the thing that Luxembourg had wanted all her life, the most in many ways advanced industrialized state in Europe, was now in the hands of the workers, including many of the politicians who had voted for the war in 1914. They were still standing at the end of 1918, and now they were the provisional government. The socialists were in charge in Berlin. But those socialists, Luxembourg thought, were fatally compromised. The people who had voted for war credits on the 4th of August 1914 could not be trusted with the revolution. And so she pushed for much, much more radical change. Free from prison, she became a revolutionary again, in every sense of that word. She tried to overturn the new Berlin regime if it wouldn't move in the direction of what she understood as free democratic socialism. She started pushing for a communist revolution, not a Leninist revolution, but a communist revolution, to open things up, to stop trying to control or to pin down, but also to stop trying to suppress the spontaneity of the revolution. She didn't get very far, and then she was persuaded into a fatal error, her fateful mistake, on a much smaller scale than Lenin's, but for her, more personally catastrophic, which was to participate in a kind of Bolshevik coup. Her small grouping, the Spartacists, attempted from the 5th of January 1919 to overthrow the new regime in Berlin, to take over the government offices with a small number of people who were armed, just as the Bolsheviks had done, to try and take hold of the centre and from the centre to try and steer the revolution in a different direction. Luxembourg had her doubts. She wasn't sure it would work. She wasn't sure it was spontaneous enough. There was more spontaneity in her mind about the actual Bolshevik revolution than this kind of ersatz Berlin version. But these were her friends, and she was a revolutionary. And this was a revolution, and something had to be done. And so she took part, and it failed. Ten days after the Spartacist uprising began, its two leaders, Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, were rounded up by soldiers, and they were shot. And Rosa Luxemburg's body was dumped in a canal in Berlin, where it was not found until the summer, though it was known that she had been murdered because she disappeared. In the last series of History of Ideas, I talked about the great lecture that Max Weber gave in January 1919 in Munich, not in Berlin, about politics as a vocation. And in it, there is certainly an echo, a hint, that one of the things he was thinking about was the fate of Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, of the revolutionaries. And in that lecture, he uses the line, the cold, heartless line, of that kind of revolutionary politics. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He does not shed any tears for the fate of Rosa Luxemburg, whose body at that point was in a canal in Berlin. And what Weber says is unfair. It's not just heartless. It's unfair. I think it's unfair for two reasons. It's unfair because Luxembourg had something in common with Weber, not because they shared an outlook, but because they shared an instinct. And the instinct was that there was a deep danger in any form of revolutionary politics that believed 
that the pragmatic choices that you made, the compromises you made, didn't matter if you had a goal in mind that would transcend them. In other words, they shared an instinct that the kind of rigid orthodox revolutionaries who say, this stage doesn't matter, this period of killing doesn't matter, this reign of terror doesn't matter, because at some point we're going to reach the promised land, those are possibly the most dangerous people of all. The fact that Luxembourg was herself a revolutionary and died in that kind of revolution and that Weber was an opponent of that kind of revolutionary politics doesn't mean that they both didn't understand it. Luxembourg understood it and wrote it with more courage than Weber did in 1918 about Leninism. Weber in 1918 called Leninism a fascinating experiment. Luxembourg, who thought that Lenin's revolution was the greatest thing that had ever happened in the history of the world, from a jail cell in 1918, foresaw the disaster that the experiment was already destined to be. And what's the other reason that it's unfair? I think Luxembourg would say, yes, those who live by the sword may well die by the sword. But those who live by the sword, those who've lived a revolutionary life, those who have tried, genuinely tried, to make it change, at least those people have really lived. Find out more about Luxembourg and the other authors being discussed in this series on the History of Ideas page at talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Next time, David talks about Carl Schmidt, a writer who offered penetrating insights into the failings of the Weimar Republic before he was fatally compromised by what came next. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 